0: Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment with features on Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book and Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace and a special section on the best films of the year plus reviews of the latest releases. Subscribe today at filmcomment.com. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book, winner of the first-ever Special Palme d'Or at Cannes, and an official selection of the 56th New York Film Festival, The Image Book Hits Theaters, starting January 25th.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast, another day... Um, podcasting from the Sundance Film Festival in Park City. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. And we've all seen several more movies and have run around all day doing so. But who are we? Well, I'm joined by...
2: Eric Hines, curator of Film Museum of the Moving Image and a Film Comment
1: columnist.
3: And... Devika Gadeesh, Film Comment contributor.
1: So... For tonight, at least, uh, we, we have a repeat of yesterday, um, and I'm sure we'll be adding more people until we have 10 people here talking <laughs> all at once. Uh, that's, that's my ultimate goal. But I guess one thing I I've, I've wanted to do, and I'm remiss in not doing already before we start talking about our films and our days, um, but it's been um, a very sad week. Really, uh, in the world of film, especially for for New Yorkers, I think the past week is more or less consumed, you know, by the 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 passing of Jonas Mekas, which I think at least the news was on Wednesday, um, yeah. and uh, you know it's just such a different sphere of experience for than from for for, all, for a lot of people here. So it, you know, it's not like it was cropping up in like. Introductions or, or or anything that that I've heard, but yeah, I, there's not much more I can say than that. It's just to pay respects uh, for a moment, and then also, Eric, you just mentioned to me, another filmmaker, Makayevich. Yeah, yes. Yeah,
2: who I think just this morning, yeah,
1: it was announced. So
2: those are very significant losses. Those are absolute legends. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely
2: and and honestly two filmmakers whose work very early in my cinephilia or my understanding of film or I should say unconventional film huge um discoveries for me personally.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, me for me too. Uh, I mean that yeah, I think there there are two filmmakers where you see it, you see their films early and it just completely takes apart your brain and puts yeah. it back together again. No, totally. about what can be done and yeah, you know, we're at a festival that champions independence, so I I I you know, couldn't fail yeah. <laughs> to mention uh, Jonas Mekas. Well, without further ado, I guess we can talk about some of the new films that we've been seeing. And I think the big one today, Saturday probably, um, for many people was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And the director's name...
3: Joe Talbot and is the director. Yes. And he made it with his friend Jimmy Fails.
1: And it's his first feature
3: Yes, I believe so. Yes, yes,
1: and he had a short that was here at the festival a couple of years ago. Yeah. So what did we think about this film that's set deep in the heart of San Francisco and about the heart, the beating heart of San Francisco? I want to know what you think. <laughs> well, Nick, Nick and I chatted about it before. This, so, this, this moment is always a, like a poker game. Like, <laughs> I know. We're going to put our cards down at some point.
3: Just giving each other side My cards will be shown, but I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I guess... I was looking forward to seeing the film because the premise seemed interesting. It's kind of docu-fictional. I didn't stay for the Q&A, so I don't exactly know to what extent it's docu-fictional, but I know that the lead actor...
1: But
2: by docu-fictional, you I mean based on some sort of truth? Or? Yeah,
3: I mean, I think that's what, uh, I think some press notes or something said that it's like based on the, the lead performer's actual life and, and a lot of the narrative is like taken from his real experiences. Uh, again, I don't know the extent or I don't even know if docu is the right word, but I just saw that mm-hmm, floating mm-hmm, around. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I should also summarize the film a little yeah. bit. Um, so it's about uh, Jimmy Fails, I guess, plays himself and it's him and his friend Montgomery. They live in San Francisco and Jimmy lives with Montgomery, who is a writer. And Jimmy doesn't have a place of his own and he's sort of never had a place of his, of his own really and his father lives in an SRO. So, you know, right away there's this, uh, you know, gentrification is kind of the central theme of the film. And there's a house that Jimmy believes was built by his grandfather, who people refer to as the first black man in San Francisco. And now it's in this gentrified neighborhood and this white couple lives there. And it's kind of Jimmy and Montgomery, Montgomery's exploits as they try to get back in the house, the couple leaves, so they try to squat there and they run into other colorful characters uh, in San Francisco and just kind of confront the changing urban landscape of the city in various ways and the racial dynamics of the city. And I guess it felt to me like it was a lot of little vignettes or moments strung together but it didn't really add up to much, and I was a little underwhelmed by it. Uh, It was also kind of meandering and and really seemed to progress from scene to scene as opposed to having some kind of through line that kept me, you know, uh, drew my attention throughout. But individually, there were moments and scenes that stood out to me that I thought were interesting or that revealed a sort of idiosyncratic or kind of distinctive, like, voice, uh, like either writerly or, or you know, directorial voice. So, so you know, I, I'm glad to have seen it and I was interested and I feel like I'll be kind of looking forward to whatever the this filmmaker and this performer, the duo, they do next. But I'm not sure if this was, this like stood out to me particularly. What about you guys?
1: I, I feel like I'm going to end up being... Maybe the film's booster among among us three somehow. Okay, right. I don't know. I, I I can I can hold that in reserve. Or, or Eric, if you want to <laughs> <laughs> join the court. I'm. You're. you're um, yeah, go yeah, for it. I mean, I, I yeah, I I I thought it started very promisingly, and and they 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 kind of take they kind of make the most of your really not knowing what a movie titled like that is gonna look like uh, from the outset. You know, I mean, the first shot is is, 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 a, is a little girl staring up and then you see from her point of view, she's looking at a guy in a hazmat suit and you're like, what on earth is going, you know, it could be the beginning of, you know, some, some sort of zombie movie or something. Um, and then they just set the scene of, of of like a neighborhood being taken over by some forces and um, this, this idea of a conspiracy theory because there's a street preacher who immediately sets up shop. Um, and then they kind of playfully make their way to introduce. It just has a nice way of, like, easing into Oh, things. and I
3: should mention, yeah. uh, they in that introductory sequence, they, like, skateboard through the city together, yeah. and that yeah. that sequence, like, I, I loved that sequence, and that had me kind of looking forward to the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's kinda. great.
1: Uh, and, you know, you get this immediate r- kind of, you know, running panorama of the city and, you know, with a kind of satirical bent to it as well because it kind of progresses from... You know, interesting or likable characters to to obviously like, you know, white hipsters or you know that that uh, that that kind of uh, spectrum of of uh, of development and uh, gentrification. So, but and then afterwards, you know, you you get to know their rapport and it's it's kind of sweet and touching the friendship between them. Although they're already, <laughs> it's it. I mean, that's something that I think uh, definitely reaches a limit for me. The the, the two friends. Um, I uh, I don't know. This is where I'm kind of with you, Eric, about one of the movie's flaws.
2: Well, I mean, I mean, listen. I mean, it's 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 operating in a somewhat fantasy land, somewhat allegorical space. Um, and towards the end, it gets actually quite mythological too, in terms of where it leads us off. Um, but it's also existing in the contemporary San Francisco, um, dealing with the issues that are confronting long-term residents in San Francisco. There are There is Instagram shows up in it. It's clearly the current moment. It's flummoxing to me, and I've never saw it truly addressed how the two main characters are maybe 30 but they're behaving like 15-year-olds throughout. I mean, literally everything that they do is what 15-year-olds would do. Right. So the docu-fictional aspect of the, the the filmmaker and his best friend writing this film together and the director making it with starring his best friend, it feels almost like stuck in the moment they maybe first thought of doing something like this. Because the idea of grown men um, uh, living together like they're like they're teenagers, it's, it's kind of fun to watch when it starts, but the fact that and, two hours later, I still don't have any sense of what their sexuality is or what their relationship actually entails or what their adult lives might be like. There are little nods to them having jobs. But I mean, after the first 15 minutes of the film, we don't spend any time with them having jobs. So it's like, there's a peanuts quality to it. Like, these are all things that like, okay, like I can go with this. But towards the end, I ran out of patience because I didn't feel it was addressing any of these natural real world, Questions about who these characters might be, like there's a there's a lack of depth to them as characters, even though it's clearly based on decades of intimacy between yeah. people behind the scenes. There there's just kind of like they're always characters in quotes. I don't yeah. know that they ever f- achieve any kind of depth beyond that. Yeah.
3: Almost felt like a stoner comedy with almost no weed. You know, like they just. <laughs> I, there's perfect. no ill.
2: There's no bad behavior. There's like there's like a Greek chorus of of thugs, I guess, of whatever right. you might call it, like kids from the block who are you know yeah. bra- you know full of braggadocio and piss and vinegar. But like that's the only glimpse you see of like bad yeah. behavior.
3: And that's yeah. also like a very like accessorial aspect of the film. I mean, I thought that. Yeah, the group of friends who hang out. Again, first of all, I I mean, are they? I don't know why they always hang out there. I guess it's maybe supposed to be like whimsical, but it just confused me because I have no idea what their role in the film is. Maybe first I thought maybe there'll be like a Greek chorus or something, but they just say stuff, and not all of that the stuff they say is that funny or.
1: (laughs) You wanted a more entertaining gang. <laughs> <laughs> well I mean they're clearly uh, like a
2: counterpoint. Are they
3: a gang though? I mean I have no idea yeah. what they are.
1: Well like the <laughs>
2: counterpoints, like our main characters are unique, different, and they're always yeah. referred to as being unique and different. And they are have they're quirky and they've got their different predilections and impulses and they're contrapuntal to the the kids in the street who are kind of hanging around together and and performing masculinity between them. And our main characters are not performing traditional masculinity. But what is that masculinity? One of those characters is is clearly coded as gay in many ways. But the idea in 2019 that you're going to have a major character like that, that you don't even want to go there, feels, I I don't know, I was actually kind of stunned by that.
1: Yeah, it's coy in a way that can sort of get under your skin in a bad way. (laughs) So Jonathan Majors, who plays Montgomery, is actually
2: extraordinary. Like, I mean, everything about his performance is something of, I I didn't, it's unfamiliar to me Um, and works for a character who's entirely unique. But again, like it winds up, though his performance is full of depth, I think the character as written.
1: Yeah, no, it's actually actually funny that um, Danny Glover has a small role in the movie as well because he has something of the same kind of sly charm, I think, um, uh, mm-hmm. that that uh, Montgomery does I, I, yeah I mean about the group of guys who hang out on the sidewalk they're also positioned in, in a weird way in the film like they're the authentic source material for Montgomery if you think about that a little too much it starts getting uncomfortable as well I mean this is actually a movie where, like, I don't know, so much of Sundance gets coded into it. Just you know, this search for authenticity and the kind of valorization of of the the artist in in, in of of this kind of whimsical artist who's who's struggling and this almost fetishized idea of of independence and authenticity is in this movie. But if you think about it for a second, I mean, I I'm not here to like give away the ending of it, but. It's 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 the way it ends. I think I, I I can't even. It's like the movie kind of abandons its its principles by pulling the rug out from under its two characters. In in it it's it does a little escape trick, basically. I think from from having much to say ultimately. Although it's I think it's really digestible because like the writing's pretty funny a lot of the times and 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 just wry enough, you know and and, and
2: there's. Excellent set design. Yes. There's yeah. excellent clothing. It's very yes. pretty. It's very pretty. It's yes. really beautifully shot. It is. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's a certain Wes Anderson playbook being borrowed from, mm-hmm. which I think is earned some of the way in terms of how it right. matches the writing, but it also does reveal, like, even like my, my hang-up about sexuality, right. even Wes Anderson in his sort of least engaging in the real world always has some element of adulthood or... Or right. sexual impulse, almost even as a side, as an aside, that exists, and it's just completely absent from here. But, but, but anyway. But I do think yeah. it, it earns some of those comparisons in terms of how it's lit and shot, designed.
1: Yeah, about the lighting, I just, I, I always like a, a, a movie shot in San Francisco that like gets San Francisco light, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. one is just you know every other scene they're like let's just spend a little more time you know <laughs> showing the light in a certain way.
2: But also, like I, I mean, thinking about that, your point about the vignettes. Like there's a scene of the bus where he's confronting his mother oh, and he yeah. steps out of the bus and there's like a fog comes in and it's so, ma- it's yeah. wonderful because it uses the fog as if it's, it challenges your sense of reality and right. he's entering a different space and you're completely disoriented and it's a beautiful way of, of using.
3: And I mean, a lot of just weather. instances like that, just, I mean, they felt like sketches or mm. shorts yeah. and yeah. No really connective tissue between them I mean even those instances like I loved that moment when he got off the bus and and that fog it's it's not a mo- motif though you know those are like right. singular instances throughout the yeah. film that don't really feel connected to me I did I really did enjoy the artifice of it the kind of you know very playful artifice that we were just talking about and I guess the reason maybe it, it it just still feels weirdly incomplete as i don't think that gels well with how the film very prominently telegraphs its like socio-political like themes it you know it really mm. talks about gentrification but in very broad yeah. broad strokes mm. and the the whole like i i didn't really understand what was the deal with his grandfather's house and after a while it wasn't that compelling to me i guess yeah it was just within this constructed world and it was just like about this one house and them mm-hmm. wanting to squat there and then these kind of very strongly like i guess you know gestural instances where they're like confronting two white women on a bus and and yeah. housing, you know and those are just so broad it
1: is it is i mean i agree about that one that one was like oh you didn't have to do that you know but on the other hand the one where he introduces himself to, to the, the white, white neighbor. neighbor across the street yeah, i like that one and 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 the guy's sort of you know, he's this sort of like, seems like sort of doddering, sort of, old, you know, older white guy. And then as soon as he goes away, he's like, the white, white neighbor says, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Which is great because he, then he's taking off his mask of like the innocuous kind of, you know. Right,
3: And also when he's know. at the bus stop with the, the naked man and they, they see the party bus go by.
2: Yeah. And they, they say something
3: about like this city man or something. Yeah. yeah. That
2: yeah. Was no, and that's, funny that, that's probably <laughs> my favorite moment of San Francisco specificity. The notion of like our eccentric yeah. black man and the white nudist <laughs> are bonding against the frat boys coming past in a right. in a trolley. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That worked. That, that I'm, I'm all for that.
1: Yeah, that was definitely good. And the trolley, of course, playing like some sort of awful, you know, techno dance. No, no,
2: no, no. no. They were playing. What were they? they wait. Were not, wait, they were
1: playing somebody to love. Um, Oh, but a dance version. But it it was a dance version. Yes, but still. Like, it was a San Francisco. No, you're absolutely right. It is important that it is that. But it was still, like, turned (laughs) into a... It was turned into a riff and a dance. And that came up again. I mean, it's weird that that becomes... I mean, I know that's, you know, whatever, but... San Francisco. That's also what didn't make sense about the, the two, two uh, white women that he talks to on the bus. Like one of them says, I came here for Janice and the airplane. And I thought, no, you didn't. It's 2019. It's 2019. <laughs> that didn't did. work. That was like t- totally took me out of that. Um, I mean, it
2: has these flights, you know, yeah. it has these flights of trying to cram in or, yeah. or add in these, like throwing into making a cocktail of San Francisco details, which I mean, yeah. some of them work better than others. I'm yeah. okay with that for the most part. Yeah. I
1: mean, there's definitely a point where I thought, you know, if if Jarmish did this in the 80s, would we really complain too much about a lot <laughs> of this? You know, just kind of vignettes brought together and, you know, the, the, the appealingly eccentric couple of creative guys, you know.
2: He would never let go of sex though. Sex is always there.
1: <laughs> That's totally true. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of, I mean, it's interesting to think of 80s Jarmish and then... I feel like I'm always like historicizing Sundance on these podcasts, but it's hard not to because it's constantly (laughs) Someone has to. No, but well. (laughs) Well, Sundance is always- (laughs) It's constantly mythologizing itself. itself, So it's like you're always fighting this battle of like, okay, can we just actually get to the reality of what we're seeing and experiencing? And um, speaking of reality, there is a lot of reality. In fact, pages upon pages of reality in a movie called The Report, <laughs> um, which I... This
2: might be my favorite film to talk about so far. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. You're,
1: you're, I, I stayed for about an hour of this, so I don't feel qualified necessarily <laughs> to judge it. However...
3: And I was yes. smart enough to avoid it, so... <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is, of course, a film, as as Nick pointed out to me when the lights were going down, that was in development called The Torture Report, and I guess they wisely took out the word torture because everybody does like usually the word torture in a film title is a bit of uh you know of a it's a, it's a
1: damper. A deterrence. Yeah. But, but it's um, a crimp in your evening.
2: <laughs> it's cinematic kryptonite. Yeah. So it's just called the report. But then in the title sequence, it says the terror report. or The torture, torture report, report and they cancel out the word torture. They redact the they redact word redact torture. The word torture. That's right. So they had they had their cake and they ate it too. That's right. Um, But this is a film based on the true story of a researcher who works for the Senate filling in after the Justice Department basically uh, decided not to pursue um, a case or further researching the case, researching the CIA's um, use of torture. During the Bush administration. Um, And this film is basically a film about this real life figure played by Adam Driver, who spends four years of his life, five years of his life, researching um, everything that can be found, um, basically because the CIA refuses to participate, basically just using official documents and emails um, and constructs a sort of fail like entirely uh, watertight um, proof of how. they pursued torture as a strategy, despite there being no scientific proof of it of it being effective. But then also their own evaluations of the fact that the methods were not successful, did not um, yield any real information. Um, and uh, so it traces the story of, of of the building of this case, flashing back to um, the uses of these um, this torture by the CIA, um, and catching us up to I think two thousand fifteen, maybe 15. When uh, Diane Feinstein, um, with who, who he was working with most closely, going public with the results, that so, was very good. Thank you. Yes. Um, very. <laughs> Bravo. Very, very worthwhile uh, project. Very worthwhile story. I was hearing chatter afterwards, and how many people on multiple occasions. Uh, in the lobby of of, of the Eccles Theater and, and elsewhere, people saying how they kind of missed this story. Like this, they kind of vaguely knew this report came out, but they kind of didn't. It didn't really even register. And it's an incredibly important thing yeah. to have happened. So it, it it proves that a narrative of a film like this can have value in our culture and you know in terms of our understanding of things. Yeah. That all said. <laughs> Preamble over. (laughs) um, And now I feel like you can weigh in a bit, Nick, if you'd like to, (laughs) since you saw most of the film, which is. I I felt like there was
1: a lot left, but. There is a.
2: If you like films that entail people in bedraggled business attire in fluorescent lit spaces using dry erase boards to chart uh, events over a course of time, this is a film for you. If you want a film uh, that uh, telegraphs how hard its protagonist is working at every (laughs) constant, at every moment with quotes such as, (laughs) how long have you been in here? Or don't you see what this is doing to you? (laughs) Go home. Have you slept? Uh, So Adam Driver, of course, is a man who works very hard um, and is working on behalf of all of us against all odds. Uh, A true heroic man, it seems, in real life. Um, But even so, it's hard not to be cynical about the portraiture. Um, Adam Driver does his best. Um, He's always compelling. He's always great to look at. Um, I feel like he's always genuine in the moment. I don't know, as Nick alluded to, that I've seen a film with more exposition in it than than the film that I saw today called The
0: Report.
1: Yeah, I mean, or accurately titled, I guess. This is, I feel like I read the report, or at least had it read aloud to
3: me.
0: Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, with features on Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book and Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, and a special section on the best films of the year, plus reviews of the latest releases. Subscribe today at filmcomment.com. The Film Comment podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book. This provocative collage film won the first special Palme d'Or ever awarded in the history of the Cannes Film Festival. Writing for the New York Times, Manola Dargis called it a dense visual and oral collage that I've seen twice and expect to see several times more. An official selection of the 56th New York Film Festival, the image book opens January 25th at Film Society of Lincoln Center and IFC Center before expanding to select cities. Um, uh, well, you guys didn't see Divine Love, but I'll... Oh. <laughs> uh, it's narrated by a baby. <laughs> the whole
3: film is narrated by a baby. Sorry, I'm just kind of stealing he your thunder here. I'll save work. this tirade for later, maybe.
1: <laughs> I mean, this, this, I mean this, there's a, we actually maybe hit upon something here. What if the report had been narrated by a baby?
3: <laughs> no, no, but wait. The baby turns out to be the second coming... Of Jesus. So it's narrated by Baby Jesus. Wow. So
1: that's, I don't know, that sounds all right. (laughs) It's
3: not.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe Adam Driver is sort of like Baby Jesus. He's the son of Hans. He is. He has all. I guess he has kind of gospels he's working through. He's but you know, like it's a film that involves like every the transitions involve him jogging throughout Washington, DC. Yeah. Towards the end, he triumphantly walks, he literally walks away from the Capitol and towards the Washington Monument. Culminating in a quote from George Washington. <laughs> it's, it is, it is, it is, you know, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, yeah. It's, it's moving th- furniture a lot. <laughs>
1: That's a great phrase. <laughs> I mean, yeah, people are just constantly saying like things like, so what you're saying is, or what does that mean then? What does that mean? You know, and, and, and well, you sp- and I both wrote this down. Um, oh, this is the senator, Senator Diane <laughs> Feinstein. 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 I, I, up-
2: I, I didn't remember exactly. Are you, si- <laughs> are, she, are you saying they and then she went on period is that what you're saying <laughs> yeah i wonder if that's what adam driver was saying yeah and wow. then my favorite well i'm just going to get this is the last quote i'm going to say out loud here <laughs> let's worry about getting it out getting it
1: done we can worry about changing the world yeah i mean she totally said that didn't she <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, one of my favorite quotes. Tim Blake Nelson appears just to be like. Sh-. So many people appear. Yeah, lots of people appear. He appears and, 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 you know, wants to sort of feed information to Adam Driver's character. So he does a little of this and he's like, you know, I, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be talking to you. And then his exit line is, it's all in the emails. And he just, <laughs> <appears>. <laughs> he just Never to be seen
2: again. It's yeah. all in the
1: emails. Yeah, it's all in the emails. More um, of tyranny is in there. Yeah. Who else? There's someone else who was like, I was like, who? What? How is it? Uh, Dexter himself. Yes. Yes. Right. He's yeah. He's definitely in there. Um, yeah. It's it's. Uh,
2: John Hamm, of course. John Hamm and Annette Benning plays Diane Diane Feinstein, who's good actually. I mean, there's there's other other than just saying the things a senator might say to a
1: lawyer. Yeah, I think there's not much
2: there, but she's fun to watch.
1: There could have been more um slipping of glasses down the nose though. (laughs) I think there was there was room for that in there. But
2: wait, who who remembers that so we can stop if if I but but can somebody tell me the lead character in The
1: Americans that actor?
3: I just know he's Carrie Russell's husband. No, I know.
1: <laughs> this is embarrassing. I know, I watched the entire series and I forgot. <laughs> Which I have
2: not, so I'm going to be forgiven. You're not going to be. <laughs> anyway, but this is this is the, maybe this is the last thing we should say about this film because we have other films to talk about. But okay. towards the end, it comes time the script for a New York Times reporter to show up in a location for Secret information to be passed along. You see him from a distance before you find out who the actor is, but from a distance, every, he reads. I mean, it, you could, I mean, clearly, I mean, yeah. every, every, the, from the playbook of what a reporter looks like or a political reporter, he's got the unloosened tie, he's got the sort of unkempt beard, his hair yeah. looks like he hasn't really taken care of it recently and furthermore he's got the saddle he's got the sort of the saddle bag on the side
1: is is his shirt untucked oh yeah it's a little bit untucked it's a little bit untucked like as if he has just recently gotten up from being in front of his laptop (laughs) to come there yeah yeah so the report which is what nick looks like as a reporter anyway that's right yeah i'm constantly shambolically making my way um, (laughs) across park city speaking of park city what are some other movies we've seen here
3: well, speaking of torture report, I oh. saw the Nightingale.
1: There's a there's a segue. There you go. My previous segue can be erased. Two episodes in, and we'll already we have a better host. That's right.
3: <laughs> Planning a coup. Um,
1: the Nightingale, yes, um, which had its world premiere in Venice.
3: Did you see it there, or
1: uh, I did. Yes, I did. I saw it uh, at a somewhat. Um, tumultuous screening. Um, and it had a somewhat, I guess I already said in our preview podcast, it, it didn't have, you know, the happiest um, landing there for reasons, you know, not to do with, for reasons to do with the audience, <laughs> you yeah. know, rather than the movie itself. So I, what I want to do is just give you a completely <laughs> clear stage to to talk about the film.
3: Okay, so it's set in the 1800s uh, in what is today Tasmania. And... It's basically about an Irish convict who is, I guess, belongs to this uh, English, you know, colonial lieutenant. She is, undergoes some brutal torture, the torture I was speaking of, uh, in the, you know, pretty much the first 20 minutes of the film. Uh, Should I, should I? Just reveal what it is or uh, yeah I guess I think It's so. kind of yeah. important to, yeah. to whatever happens. So she's raped twice in the first 20 minutes of the film. And the second time, uh, while she is raped, her husband and her like infant are killed. And then she's left to die. And the lieutenant, played by Sam Claflin, uh goes off somewhere up north to a town where he's Going to talk to like a superior to try to get a promotion, and they believe that she's dead, so they just leave. Uh she turns out to not be dead, so she wakes up with revenge on her mind. Um and and this uh woman is played by, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Aisling Fran Fran Franciosi. Fran yeah. There's probably,
1: probably is it what do you think it would be Ailing? A A Aisling? I
3: mm-hmm. do I just I, I apologize to yeah. Aisling, no. but uh, she's a very, very fine performer, <laughs> but I cannot pronounce her name right. So she basically sets off uh, to get revenge, and her plan is to follow uh, the lieutenant up this treacherous path towards you know, this northern uh, city to basically catch up to him and exact her revenge. And she's joined on this quest by an indigenous sort of man uh who she hires named Billy, who she hires to kind of be her guide because it's the indigenous folk who know the sort of lay of the land. Um, I don't, I, I think that's pretty much, I mean, a yeah. lot of other stuff happens, but that's, yeah. that's the uh, important part of the summary, I guess. And I think it's a very challenging film. It's a tough film in a way that I admired because it starts out, seeming like it's going to be just this rape-revenge drama, you know, period drama with just this rape-revenge conceit. But then it actually turns into a pretty expansive story about colonialism. And I think that's a pretty challenging thing to do, and the film talks about race and gender and colonialism together in a way that I think is very tricky. Um, There's a lot of films... Or just cinematic representations of, I think, white feminism that often like occur at the expense of people of color. So that's this film is like treading that very thin line sometimes, mm. uh, because just this coupling of of this woman and then her her guide, both of them are in some ways. Uh, persecuted by, by the English colonizers. And so it starts out, you know, they have a testy relationship because this woman is also racist. I mean, she's Irish, but she's racist towards the indigenous folk. And so, you know, it starts out in that very, I, I think like a messy space and, and they have a lot of back and forth. And sometimes they're like trying to one up each other with, with, you know, their suffering and the oppression of their, of their kind, so to speak but it, it actually goes into some really interesting spaces and it falters sometimes. Uh, and I think that is bound to happen with such sort of sensitive topics. But I also, there were moments that felt very refreshing. There are, there are several moments where Billy, the indigenous helper, he sort of undercuts her spunk you know, and so there are moments where I thought, you know, her sort of mistreating him in some way might be played off as, oh, look at this fierce woman. She's not going to let anything in her way as she, pers- you know, pursues revenge. Yeah. But she actually gets schooled a lot. And I think that's a very complex thing to do with the protagonist who's been raped brutally twice and has seen sort of the worst you can imagine to actually have her grow in this really deep and complex way. So when the film, sometimes it falters, but when it did it right, I thought it was so audacious, and and I admired the filmmaker for it. And the other thing that I guess is something I have to think about is this is the sort of film where one extreme act of violence, which, by the way, is played out very graphically on screen, all the violence— sets up the next one as a payoff, right? I mean, the first one kind of justifies the next one, and then the chain goes on. And I'm not sure how long a gambit like that that can sustain a film. And a lot Mm -hmm. of this film is just that, like we're moving from one sort of act of violence to the next. So that's something that I think made it a little hard to watch. It was a trudge sometimes. But again, uh, towards the end, it does play with that as well. Uh, It doesn't kind of pan out predictably as you would imagine so it does surprise you by the end and again it goes into far more interesting uh, places than you would think when the film begins so overall i'm intrigued by it i want to think about it and talk about it more
1: yeah and the filmmaker i I forget if you mentioned the filmmaker jennifer kent
3: yes sorry yes, yes. Uh, who made the babadook yes a few years ago
1: um so going from this kind of perfect uh perfectly crafted like a domestic horror i don't know like she was like she was writing a new archetypal short story with that movie um into colonial horror in a way and yeah i'm not sure i would add much to that because i think that reading is more interesting than the kind of dissatisfactions I, I had, with, have, had with the movie. I, I was a little uncomfortable with what seems to be kind of a tradition that won't go away in Australian cinema, the, the kind of romanticization of in, the indigenous actors and characters who, who are sometimes treated as kind of inseparable, I think. And I think that definitely happens in this.
3: Absolutely. I just wanted yeah. to mention one moment. So this is one of the things that I, I was like, okay, this this is where the film is faltering, is when yeah. she asks Billy what do you, what did the blacks do with the bad men, the evil men, like the lieutenant and, he says, we killed them. And it's a very simplistic rendering of this other culture, you know, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. So that's exactly what you're talking about. This romanticization yeah. of the indigenous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, in a way the violence, I think a lot of people were, were turned off by, by the violence in, in, um, but I, in a way I did admire that it was that, awful and off-putting because there's nothing what it's supposed to be like elegantly depicted colonial violence. I mean, um, at the same time, I don't know that a like revenge tale structure helps the film really. I think it, it, it kind of, it brings the, the, the whole expansive horror of, of, of colonialism into something way too packaged in a way. But you know, that's the Nightingale, but we're about out of our, our daily allotment of, of uh, hemming and hawing. So uh, I don't know if anyone has any final quick takes. Eric, Eric, you've been quiet, <laughs> as the teacher no, I, says. No, I had
2: a lot to say earlier. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, those are the two films I saw today. So okay. um, nothing new to add. When we get a little bit deeper into the festival, a few things that I saw early I can start chiming in about. Yeah, well, Yeah, I don't want to... I want to jump the
1: gun on anything. Sure.
2: Well,
3: Nick and I saw The Lodge. Did oh, yeah. You, yeah, want that's to? Right. you <laughs> should
2: probably briefly talk about The Lodge,
1: right? Yeah. Gen- well, yeah. We went to it like, at <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Eric has just uh, turned upside down an hourglass. <laughs> um, a, yes, The Lodge, a, a midnight movie, a midnight screening, uh, which, uh, you know, I personally try to go to a mostly public screenings, um, something I was advised to do early on has remained important and definitely, you know, always want to get out to one or more midnight screenings. Uh, the Lodge is directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala, I want to say. I feel like all
2: proper nouns should be forgiven. <laughs> yes. this. I, I know, right? We start the podcast off saying,
1: yeah, all I don't know forgiven. that we can
2: be held responsible that's for true. the proper nouns.
1: Yeah, that's true for my marble mouth rendition of, <laughs> of these fine Austrian uh, directors uh, who previously made Goodnight Mommy, um, which actually speaking of Venice, I think also premiered in, in Venice. Uh, but here this is a where the world premiere they chose for for The Lodge uh, is Sundance. It's a um I don't know, it's it's an it's another like house of horrors kind of haunted from within it's it's a movie that's you know it's all I guess um, Veronica France was a uh, film critic or maybe is still practicing. And not that this is why this would happen, but it's definitely a movie that's like, you might think about The Shining just in the sense that here's a house where someone's going nuts. Um, because what happens is it, you have a, a father and uh, his two children, and he uh, you know, has, has a, a, a new partner, his, his uh, ex-wife, who is... Uh, quickly vanishes from the screen early on, very abruptly. Uh, you know, he, he instead sets up shop with his with his new partner, who's played by Riley Riley Keough, and they decide to go for a fun, happy-go-lucky weekend, week, month in their country house, uh, which I guess is the lodge of the title. Even though, does anyone say I want to go hang out at our lodge? I usually, go to a ski lodge or something. I don't know. That's not my biggest complaint about the film. Also, I've said too much already. I I mean, yeah, basically, uh, there the are three of them, you know, and, and dad are there. And she has some horrific past. And, you know, it's just about going crazy and snowbound and stir crazy and cabin fever. Uh, I can't say it did too much for me.
3: It did all the things you, you know, <laughs> can already guess based on that synopsis. like Yeah. I don't know. It was just very cliche, very cheesy, yeah. could have been made by some kind of haunted lodge algorithm movie <laughs> generator. I don't know. Just yeah. And has... Uh, yeah, I think Riley Keough's performance is, is pretty good, I guess.
1: I, I really like her as an actor. I think she's terrific. Yeah, I'm yeah, always yeah. curious about what she's doing next. Here, it's just a shame because she's kind of called upon to play a character who's is, is going kind of crazy and, and withdrawing and... I, There's, I don't know, there wasn't a lot, I don't know, the colors like drained from the screen in a very like, I don't know, stylized way. I never feel like they got the pacing right. I I, I don't know, I took over, I just interrupted you to reel off another list. I mean, I was just
3: going to say her backstory is that she was the daughter of some religious cult leader and part of this cult that committed like mass suicide and she's the only one that survives, Yeah, which felt like this... Very elaborate and very specific backstory to produce very basic religious horror results, you know, just crosses that are on the walls and give off like ominous vibes. And, like,
0: yeah, just that's, it could that's have been so true.
3: Any sort of religious yeah. background, it would have been like the yeah. same movie, but it was this yeah. elaborate, I don't know. So, yeah.
1: yeah, that was funny that went to that extent. And I, I, they were more or less using photos from I think it was Heaven's Gate. Those are the people who, like, died with their sneakers on, right? And and had those diamond-shaped sheets put over them, if you remember. Is it right? And they you, I, they you, it looks like actual, like, sh- photos. From I mean, obviously, they probably just recreated it. But, like, it's like, why didn't you come up with your own cult? I mean, every other horror movie is able to come up with your own cult. And you had to, like, you had to, you know, swipe from heaven's gate. A 20-year-old cult. I mean, come on.
3: And to know... End and to you no know. end, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so, if to the, the Today Show's Gene Shalit were here,
2: he would say, "Don't make a reservation at the lodge." <laughs> yes, he would. <laughs>
3: <laughs> although i i i also saw it at the midnight screening and then i had to return to my lodge oh yeah <laughs> snow covered lodge at 2 a.m yeah. and i needed to go to the kitchen to get food and i ended up just like eating three bananas and going to bed because i was scared so maybe the movie well, was good well, there Maybe you it go. worked or it i'm just a whim you. i don't know
1: there you
2: go <laughs> three bananas
3: that was it. Yep. <laughs> what? I didn't eat. I ate only bananas all day. See, that's perhaps- Are you judging me for eating three bananas? No, that's perhaps the
1: scariest thing yet is, is the dietary noting. habits of us while we, we are- We could all talk about
2: what we ate today. I'm sure it would not oh, be man, inspiring.
1: I, no, I'm embarrassed to say that. Uh, I admire <laughs> courage for revealing the three bananas because I think I had an apple and, <laughs> a, and a mess of scrambled eggs or something for breakfast. And that was it for today. Well, that brings us to the end of our educational podcast. Um, we have- Covered a number of films. I don't think any of us delight in like you know no reeling off the faults. I always I always have to say that um, you know personally I go into every movie, you know, hoping for it to be a winner. And and, and
2: further, I would just I would make a note about some yeah. of our experiences today. Like yeah. we we discussed briefly when we were sitting together. How even when we were pushed off of a film, we actually wanted to get back on. Like yeah, we actually, right? You know, it's not like something makes a bad impression
1: and you're done with it. Right, right. We're right, actually yeah. trying. Yeah, you're not just sitting there seething, um, with a couple exceptions maybe. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, let's rest up for another another day of movie going. But uh, thanks for listening, and thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Good night. Good night. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.